In the last podcast, we spoke with Dr. Richard Cheng about the clinical results being achieved with vitamin C in the treatment of COVID-19 in China. Now, in this podcast, I want to delve inside the body's chemistry close up with a leading biochemistry researcher, Doris Lowe, to understand how vitamin C works and what's actually going on in the front line, that is, in the actual body, or more specifically, the lungs of those with acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, because that's really the hub of, of what's literally killing people. So we can understand how vitamin C works and the best forms and doses to take. In my next podcast, I'll be talking with the world's leading expert in vitamin C studies, Professor Harry Hemmler from Helsinki University, to establish exactly what has already been proven in studies relating to vitamin C, because he is the king of the evidence base and has been on the case for the past 40 years. No one knows the science of vitamin C studies better than him. But now I want to welcome my favorite biochemistry wizard, uh, Doris Lowe, who is online in Mexico. Are you there, Doris? Yes, I am, Patrick. It's so nice to be here. I love your work. It's incredibly insightful. Uh, I know that my first uh, teacher, Dr. Linus Pauling, the phenomenal uh, chemist, bright man, who really is the founder of all modern chemistry, I think he would be uh, enjoying so much your uh, very insightful and intelligent dissection of what's going on, which we are going to go into. But first, I'd like to ask you how you got first interested in vitamin C and nutritional medicine. For that, I, I think I need to go back to when I was about eight years old. Um, I was running a fever and I didn't want to have to go to see a doctor and stay at home from school. So I decided for whatever reason to take a couple of vitamin C tablets, which reduced the fever within a few hours. Since that time, I've been experimenting with vitamins and minerals, uh, medicinal herbs and spices, as well as essential oils. Now, my fascination with vitamin C began late in 2017 when I accidentally discovered that ascorbic acid is actually a birefringent crystal. And that means it has a unique optical effect of being able to split photons and depolarize them. When a ray of light enters a birefringent material like calcium carbonate or ascorbate, it will be broken up into two rays going in different directions coming out of the uh, crystal. And that is why you see double images through birefringent crystals. This discovery led me down a rabbit hole so deep that I don't think I ever made it out yet. Ascorbic acid is actually an ancient molecule over 3 billion years old. It is part of every step during evolution, and that is why all essential biological processes tie back to ascorbic acid. Now, uh, it's funny you say that because many people don't realize that all animals make vitamin C, except for very few, and that is uh, monkeys and apes, including us. Uh, yes. most, most bats have lost the ability to make vitamin C. Uh, there is also a, um, there's a couple of fish, the guinea pig, uh, the fruit-eating uh, red-vented bulbul bird, but every other 
creature makes vitamin C in rather large quantities. I mean, a goat my size is going to make about 15 grams or 15,000 milligrams. One gram is approximately 20 supermarket oranges. So yes, uh, vitamin C has been around for a very, very long time. Absolutely. Now, I was very impressed by your highly insightful post on what's happening close up when the lungs are under attack from COVID-19. And I really want to unpack this uh, with you. Now, for people who are listening, don't worry, we're going to go into some pretty deep stuff. But Doris has written some fantastic reports on this, which I'm going to put up on my new website, um, flufighters.net. And if you click on the link in the resources section, you can go straight to uh, what Doris is going to teach us now, uh, but even deeper if you wish to go deeper. So don't worry too much about making notes because they are there. So can we unpack this, so to speak, slowly and as simply as possible? Because many of my readers, my listeners, don't you know, have that chemistry background. And also, uh, so that we can understand why oxygenation, so it's all about oxygen, starts to plummet, uh, which is a very early sign of acute respiratory distress. And that is why uh, people end up needing mechanical ventilation. So as we unpack this, we can also understand the symptoms that people experience and what's actually driving them. So what's it all about? Okay. COVID-19 uses a multi-pronged attack strategy. And the first organ of major insult is actually the lungs. This virus has what we call spike proteins that enable them to get inside cells and especially those alveolar cells in the lungs. These alveolar cells are balloon-like pockets in the lungs and this is where the virus can replicate very quickly, making new virus particles that can transmit and infect other cells. In addition to attacking lung tissues, research from China shows that COVID-19 virus actually destroys hemoglobin, which are used by red blood cells to carry oxygen around the body. Hemoglobin can carry oxygen because they have iron in a specific form in the center of heme that can bind and secure oxygen. So this virus is actually able to damage and dislodge these iron atoms from the heme, turning hemoglobin into an unstable form, and this starts a chain reaction of oxidant damage. Now, the COVID-19 virus is really clever in that after it kicks out that iron atom, it actually slips into that vacant spot in the center of the heme like a Trojan horse that gets carried around the body, infecting more cells. Now, hemoglobin that is damaged by COVID-19 is called a cell-free heme or CFH. CFH is not bound inside hemoglobin and it cannot carry oxygen. And this is why patients always report being out of breath and unable to breathe. 
Now, this destruction of hemoglobin drastically lowers the amount of oxygen available to cells. But sadly, the damage doesn't stop there. Cell-free heme can destroy nitric oxide also. Nitric oxide is a valuable vasodilator that keeps blood flowing smoothly inside blood vessels. Without nitric oxide, you end up with vasoconstriction leading to hypertension and cardiovascular dysfunctions. This is the exact principle behind the drug Viagra, which promotes blood flow by increasing nitric oxide. Natural foods like beetroot can also increase nitric oxide production. Now going back to that atom that were the, the iron atom that were dislodged by the COVID-19 virus. These free iron atoms need to be packaged into safe and stable proteins called ferritin because free iron is oxidized and is very dangerous. This is also the reason why COVID-19 patients have extremely elevated ferritin levels. So at this stage, the infected individual can't breathe properly because of plummeting oxygen levels due to massive increase of free heme that doesn't carry oxygen. The main indicator used in ICU is the oxygenation index, which shows the ability of a patient to use oxygen. Most COVID-19 patients in ICU will require mechanical ventilator assistance to maintain oxygen levels in order to stay alive. Now, this cascading damage effect of cell-free heme, heme continues as they now exacerbate cytokine storms, beginning with the liver. Now, let me stop you there, and, and uh, it's very clear and very interesting. What is a cytokine storm? What is a cytokine? Let's, let's start there. Okay. A, a cytokine, cytokines are immune responses that are generated by the body when there is inflammation and infection. Some cytokines are pro-inflammatory, others are anti-inflammatories. Examples of cytokines are tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin beta, interleukin 6, interleukin 10, interleukin 18. And almost in all severe COVID-19 patients, they have elevated pro-inflammatory cytokines. And the problem is normally, when cytokines are generated, we have balancing mechanisms to stop the production. But in COVID-19, these cytokines go out of control and they cannot be stopped. And this is a cytokine storm. I actually had one of these uh, uh, less than two months ago. Uh, it sort of illustrates the, the situation. I was actually feeling uh, super healthy. I was in Kenya and uh, heading off for a two-day uh, safari. And uh, I, I was staying that night in a hotel in some little village town in the north of Kenya, and I started to feel not well. I went to bed, and I started shivering and shaking. My teeth were rattling. I was absolutely freezing. 
and my body temperature was massively high. And in the morning, I thought, hmm, you know, maybe I've got malaria. So I went and checked into the local hospital, and they thought I had malaria, but I didn't. I actually had sepsis or septicemia. I had a yeah. bacterial infection. So they immediately slapped me on a, a 48-hour antibiotic drip. Uh, fortunately, I had vitamin C with me, so I was taking a lot of that as well. And luckily, in my case, 48 hours later, I was absolutely fine. No problem at all. Felt great. But that, those, um, you know, those white blood cells, and it's the white blood cells that contain immune cells like T cells, macrophages, and so on. Yes. Uh, you know, they should be kind of, you know, down towards a sort of score of 20 or 10 or 5 or, you know, somewhere down there. And they shot up well into the hundreds. And also one of the measures of inflammation, which is uh, CRP or C-reactive protein, yes. which again yes. should be below 10. That was up at 160. So the yes. body had very quickly. Always elevated. Always yes. elevated in COVID-19 patients. Always. Yes. Very, so, very. So that's a cytokine storm. So it's really pretty scary what you're saying because what you're saying is that the core of the respiratory distress is this massive chain reaction of oxidant damage triggered by the messed up cell-free heme uh, with a now radicalized iron atom that is incredibly unstable. <clears throat> the liver is fighting hard to gather up all this dangerous iron, so ferritin levels rocket. And all of this is triggering the immune system to overreact with a cytokine storm causing massive inflammation. Uh, is that basically what's going on? Yes, but the thing is, while this is all happening, all the immune agents in the white blood cells like macrophages, neutrophils, and lymphocytes, they are actually not able to work properly because at this point, your body is using up all your vitamin C. And if they don't have enough, these immune responders are unable to do their work and therefore they make things actually worse. Okay, so what is the role of vitamin C in this? How does vitamin C reverse this process? Okay, vitamin C ascorbic acid is what we call a redox molecule. That means ascorbic acid not only can neutralize a harmful oxidant, but this molecule can actually be recycled many times over and over again by uh, different I'll stop, you, stop you there, because the word redox may be new for a lot of people, and actually, <gasps> it's, it's, no, no, it's fine. It's, it's an acronym for um, reduction oxidation. Correct, correct. And uh, for... For people who are not sort of in on this chemistry, it's a little bit like you've got a fire, uh, which is kind of oxidation, and you've got to put it out. And in this case, the vitamin C, I know, um, you know, if you're American, you say vitamin C. Uh, the vitamin C then sort of neutralizes that fire to some extent, but then it, it actually becomes in the oxidized form. So we've got reduced, fully loaded vitamin C, which is ascorbic acid, and then we have uh, so oxidized vitamin C, we call um, dehydroascorbic acid. And then yes. it's recycled back. So it's really, 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 really,
what is used by the body and is the one electron oxidation product, semi-dehydroascorbate. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yes. So there are two forms. It is actually really versatile. A lot of enzymes use the one electron oxidation form while our immune system responders like macrophages, lymphocytes, and neutrophils, they use the two oxidation uh, product, dehydroascorbate. Yeah, because the, these immune cells, macrophages, neutrophils, T lymphocytes, they can actually recycle ascorbic acid and put it back to work. Yes, absolutely, because they need ascorbic acid to perform redox processes. Redox is actually an exchange of electrons. A lot of processes, like in the generation of nitric oxide, needs electrons to, let's say, reduce or to add to a substance after it's been oxidized. And in, in the generation of nitric oxide, we have to have ascorbic acid to regenerate BH4. Otherwise, nitric oxide cannot be produced. And macrophages and neutrophils, they all depend on nitric oxide to do their functions. So that's why they import DHA and DHA, DHA is what? The, the two electron oxidation product of ascorbic acid, dehydroascorbic. Okay, so, we, so just as we go and we've got ascorbic acid, which we can think of as kind of fully loaded, and then it yeah. changes into um, dehydroascorbic acid, we'll call it DHA. DHA. As we move and forward. Macrophages, lymphocytes, and neutrophils, they all take up DHA. Mm -hmm. And what DHA does is it actually stimulates the production of glutathione. And then inside these cells, the glutathione reduces the DHA back into ascorbic acid, and they release the ascorbic acid back into the plasma. And all the time, they are making nitric oxide, so everybody is happy. That, that's how this beauty of ascorbic acid works in the body. It keeps getting reused and everybody uses it, gets work done, and everything works fine. But if you don't have ascorbic acid, everything basically stops. And this is what happens in COVID-19 if you don't have enough ascorbic acid. And if you don't have enough ascorbic acid, what happens to the immune cells, you know, our, our army of T cells? What happens? Oh. T cells. Okay. Now, in T lymphocytes, it is really, really sad because without DHA to increase glutathione, T cells would have lower and lower glutathione. And in experiments, they've shown that when T cells are depleted of glutathione, they the numbers can be reduced by up to by more than 75% in just three days. And that is the reason why in all COVID-19 patients, whether they are severe or not severe, if they have pneumonia, they all have low T cells. It's across the board. Everybody has low T cells. And by the way, uh 
scurvy. We've all heard of scurvy where your yes. teeth fall out and your gums bleed, but, uh, which is a deficiency of vitamin C. But actually, uh, what people die from in scurvy is pneumonia. Uh, so we're seeing here this very close link between lung function, pneumonia, and uh, COVID-19 and vitamin C. Now, you've mentioned uh, that the key is not only getting ascorbic acid into your, into your system very quickly, uh, but also helping it to be recycled. So before we look at you know, how much we need, uh, you've mentioned the antioxidant glutathione. Are there other uh, sort of nutrients that we could be eating, supplementing, uh, that help to recycle ascorbic acid that, in a way, help us to get the biggest bang for our buck out of ascorbic acid? Um, yes. Now, that's a really, really fantastic question. The human body is actually designed to rapidly recycle ascorbic acid using a molecule called NADH. The precursor to NADH is the B vitamin known as niacin. So when you have enough niacin, it will help the body regenerate and recycle ascorbic acid. There is another molecule known as alpha-lipoic acid, or ALA, which have been found in rodent studies to help ascorbic acid recycling. The problem is, of course, rodents make ascorbic acid. So the way ALA benefits the recycling process may be somewhat different in humans, since we don't make ascorbic acid. Now, I say this because observations in other studies have shown that only alpha-lipoic acid in a specific form called DHLA, which has one more electron than ALA, can be used to regenerate ascorbic acid. I, 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 every day I have an antioxidant supplement which contains uh, that. So I've got the extra alpha-lipoic acid. I also take niacin. I also take glutathione. I also take uh, vitamin C. And some years ago, uh, you may know this, but there was a patent uh, taken out on some very good research by a man called Professor Treusch in Germany. And uh, what the patent was for was that he had discovered uh, that glutathione is such a powerful antioxidant. And in fact, uh, us uh, nutritionists and doctors measure uh, red cell glutathione levels as an indicator of immune strength, really, and antioxidant status. And what he found was that glutathione is so rapidly oxidized, so if you supplement it, not so much gets into your cells. It kind of gets spent along the way. But he found that anthocyanidines, uh, that's the blue-red uh, compounds, for example, right. in elderberry or blueberry or whatever, actually... Exactly, it recycles it. And you can, again, get maybe five times more glutathione effect so we're starting to see the fundamental principle in nutrition, which is the synergy of nutrients. We've mentioned vitamin C, we've mentioned glutathione, we've mentioned niacin, alpha-lipoic acid, anthocyanidines. But coming back to vitamin C, I mean, how much ascorbic acid is needed in these emergency situations when someone is suffering from respiratory distress? How much do they need to prevent uh, that, uh, you know, cytokine storm, the crashing oxygen levels. What does this mean in terms of intravenous or oral doses? 
Okay, I'll start with um, individuals who are experiencing critical infections. So if you have severe pneumonia symptoms and fever accompanied by myalgia, you of course need to seek medical advice, but immediately you should take at least three to five grams of ascorbic acid depending on the severity of your symptoms. Then you should follow this initial dose with two grams every 30 minutes. And if the fever and difficulty in breathing do not improve in three to four hours, take another three to five grams of ascorbic acid followed by two grams every 30 minutes. Keep repeating the cycle for 12 hours. And if the condition does not improve, you need to increase the initial dosage of up to 10 grams then followed by three to five grams every 30 minutes. Now, once your conditions improve and stabilize, as you can go back to two grams every hour. Some people have reported that as soon as their ascorbic acid levels drop, the shortness of breath returns immediately. If that should happen to you, take a hammer dose of three to five grams of ascorbic acid. <coughs> Excuse me. If you are infected, you essentially have an unlimited tolerance for ascorbic acid. Your tolerance may increase to more than 100 grams, and that is actually normal because doctors in the past have used, a, used oral ascorbic acid in amounts over 200 grams to treat viral pneumonia. Now, if you just got infected and the cytokine storms have not started yet, you can take an initial dose of about three grams, followed by one to two grams every hour. And you can repeat the cycle every eight hours until you are completely without symptoms. Then you can go back to the maintenance dose of one to two grams per hour to a total of eight to 12 grams per day. But make sure at that point you are taking a higher level of ascorbic acid than before you were infected because if you got infected and show symptoms, that means the level of ascorbic acid you were taking was not enough. So after you are symptom-free, make sure you stay on a dose that was higher than before you got infected. Now. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, for people who are listening, uh, all of this is written down on the website bluefighters.net. And my book, Flu Fighters, does have uh, Doris Lowe's specific recommendations. Now, when I was talking with Dr. Cheng about the studies in China, but also the actual treatment of people with COVID-19 respiratory distress, uh, they, they, they did a preliminary report on the first 50 people, and not one of them died. I mean, this is really important. And specifically, they spoke about one case of a person in their 70s who they expected to die. I mean, their oxygen, oxygenation level was plummeting. They were in a very bad way. And they gave this person um, 50 grams intravenous vitamin C. And they literally watched that oxygenation uh, index in real time increasing, uh, and the patient came back to consciousness and, in fact, recovered fully and was discharged. And uh, one scientist who was there at the time, he said, well, of course, what we want is to see the results of these trials. And by the way, this particular trial in, in China is over. So they've finished and they're now analyzing the results. But he said, when you can watch one person 
uh, and you can see in real time that oxygenation increasing and every uh, measure improving and the person comes effectively back to life. That is science. I mean, you only need one clear documented case like that to realize that what we're talking about here is not just a theory, it is actually what's going on in the body. Oh, yes, absolutely, because I am now getting anecdotal reports from readers who are following the vitamin C protocol because they are infected and they say it is working. Now, one of the uh, drugs that is also used in China and I think in a lot of IC units is uh, basically, it's, it's basically um, uh, chloroquine. It's, the, it's, like the, it's related to the quinine uh, that people used to take for malaria in, in tonic. It's hydroxychloroquine. It's an anti-malarial drug. Now, how does that fit in with your theory? It, it fits in like a dream because the reason why anti-malarial drugs have worked so well in COVID-19 patients is because the malaria parasite also destroys red blood cells like COVID-19. The main difference between malaria and COVID-19 is the parasite engulfs the free heme so that the toxicity of the free heme doesn't kill the malaria parasite. Now, hydroxychloroquine is able to bind to that free heme, increasing its toxicity while it blocks the malaria parasite from engulfing and neutralizing the toxic free heme. That's how that is one of the main mechanisms how hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine kills malaria parasites. And in the same way, by binding to free heme, these anti-malarial drugs can block some of the main replication tools used by the COVID-19 coronavirus to infect cells. That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. Um, by the way, the you know, I mean, this is standard treatment now and recommended, but some of these medications, they, they do have adverse effects. And I should point out here that uh, vitamin C in very large amounts can do too. Uh, maybe not in an acute situation, but possibly in people who have uh, poor kidney function or certain genetic abnormalities. So once you're up to like 100 gram, 200 gram, you know, this is really definitely a, a medical situation. You do need to be a bit careful. Below that, really, we're usually talking about going up to bowel tolerance. That is the level that gives you diarrhea and then, and then down some. But the, um, the, the chloroquine, it's, I, actually, I was writing a poem about this the other day. I said, there's uh, nothing scarier than a dose of cerebral malaria. It wasn't the gin that did him in. It was the tonic that made his liver chronic. <laughs> because it was, it was the quinine in tonic, you know, that actually ended up damaging the liver in people uh, in Africa who were using this as their uh, sort of daily anti-malarial agent. Yes, because these drugs, they have an effect on DNA, mm -hmm. and if it kills the virus, it can also damage DNA in the body. And by the way, I'm, I want to make it clear here: we're not, you know knocking these drugs, they're terribly important. No, very, absolutely. It's the only thing that really works right now. Yeah. It'll save life, no, no questions asked. I saw in your paper the research of my friend Owen Fonero, who set up the Vitamin C Foundation. And uh, what was really uh, fascinating, and I've, I've actually put this into my uh, book, 
is that what he did uh, was to was to take uh, either ascorbic acid um, or uh, sodium ascorbate. Now we'll talk, we'll unpack this, but ascorbic acid is an acid, uh, while sodium ascorbate is an alkaline form uh, of vitamin C. And uh, what you'll see if you if you look in the book uh, is that uh, the sodium ascorbate, uh, the blood level of, of vitamin C does go up. It goes up sort of quite gradually and it stays up. But what happens with the ascorbic acid? Uh, it goes up much higher and then it dips and then it goes up again and then it dips and then it goes up again and then it dips and then it goes up again and then it dips. And this was with a 10 gram dose, by the way. So uh, it actually showed this recycling effect that we're talking about, that vitamin C does its antioxidant function, if you like. It then has to get reloaded to work again, and then again, and then again, and then again. And you don't see that with the sodium ascorbate. So could you explain the difference between ascorbic acid and sodium ascorbate, and why ascorbic acid might be better? Uh, okay. When I saw that groundbreaking study by Dr. Owen Fonero and Stephen Hickey, I was just like, my jaw dropped to the ground because no one until their paper came out could show that ascorbic acid is actually recycled, reused, and regenerated in the body. And their paper showed for the first time in history that that is what happens in the body. So the main difference between sodium ascorbate and its parent molecule, ascorbic acid, is that one hydrogen atom in the ascorbic acid is replaced by a sodium ion. The addition of a sodium ion completely changes the structure of ascorbic acid. And this, in my mind, could interfere with the way ascorbic acid is picked up by enzymes that recycle or reuse ascorbic acid for specific functions. Now you can sort of think of ascorbic acid as a master key that fits into different biological locks. A key with a slightly different arrangement of atoms would not open these locks in the same way, or maybe even at all. In fact, studies have shown definitively that even a mirror image of ascorbic acid is rejected by some enzymes that use ascorbic acid, especially like in the biosynthesis of nitric oxide, ascorbic acid absolutely cannot be replaced by other antioxidants. So that, that is the main difference between sodium ascorbate or other buffered forms like calcium ascorbate, magnesium ascorbate, potassium ascorbate. It's the change in the way the atoms are put together in the parent molecule ascorbic acid. It's completely different. And so it's not going to be able to dock in enzymes which have evolved over billions of years to work with ascorbic acid and its one electron oxidation products or two electron oxidation products, which have specific molecular structures. They'll say, oh, this thing doesn't fit. So, you know, not going to take it. That's what happens. So why is sodium ascorbate not ascorbic acid given intravenously? 
Huh? Uh, you mean ascorbic acid not given intravenously? Yeah, yeah. Why? Why? I mean, basically, intravenous vitamin C is usually sodium ascorbate. Correct. Correct. Why is that? Now, that is because of the pH. Ascorbic acid is very acidic. Intravenous delivery of vitamin C must be buffered to match physiological pH, which is about seven. Now, most standard intravenous solutions use sodium ascorbate, which is ascorbic acid combined with sodium bicarbonate or other buffers to bring the solution's pH up to at least 5.0 or higher. I should explain here, uh, there's a pH scale. And by the way, that H is hydrogen. So you know, right. uh, when Doris was explaining how you've got this sort of core uh, ascorbic acid or, uh, you know, vitamin C molecule, which has a hydrogen attached to it, which makes it ascorbic acid, and pH, the H is hydrogen. And if the score is below seven, uh, it's acidic. And if it's above seven, it's, uh, it's alkaline. So what's happening here is while I believe ascorbic acid is something like two uh, pH or maybe 2.5. Yes. Uh, or something 1.5, one, yeah. yeah. Something like sodium ascorbate will get it to about 5.5. Or six. Yeah, yeah. Um, and which matches the pH of the blood, and which is what you need. Mm -hmm. And it's quite interesting because I've been looking at different um, sort of formulations and how people make this because you can actually buy uh, ascorbic acid, uh, uh, you know, to add into a saline bag. And, and there's kind of different instructions. I mean, some are talking about adding ascorbic acid into the saline bag, and I wonder uh, whether that actually you know, combines. In other words, do you end up, you obviously end up with a solution which is more, you know, balanced towards the blood's pH. Uh, but maybe it's not all bound uh, into sodium ascorbate. And the other question there really for you is that if you've got this sodium ascorbate in the body, can it kind of unpack that uh, so it does end up with ascorbic acid as well? Um, okay. Now, intravenous delivery of sodium ascorbate is actually a Excellent, excellent way to support the liver, which has to crank out enormous amounts of a protein called haptoglobin, which is carried by macrophages. These haptoglobin actually stabilize and sequesters those ferritin, those free heme, so that they are not destructive. And haptoglobin requires an antioxidant to donate electrons to it so that it can keep the heme stabilized. And that is why sodium ascorbate is so useful because it supports the functions of haptoglobin. So in an ideal situation, would it be good to have sodium ascorbate but also uh, be supplementing or having a drink of ascorbic acid and keeping that you know, going uh, you know, on a regular basis if you're really suffering? Absolutely, Patrick. I think this is really the best way to support COVID-19 infected individuals because you have a nonstop delivery of sodium ascorbate that supports the haptoglobin and macrophages. And then the oral ascorbic acid ingested 
can be used by everything else to make sure all the functions that require ascorbic acid, especially in the generation of nitric oxide as well as glutathione, not be disrupted. And I think with both oral delivery of ascorbic acid and intravenous delivery of sodium ascorbate, the patient will be getting the best of both worlds and they will recover even faster. Love, I would love the doctors in China to test my theories because I bet they can half the time mm. in, uh, for patients on IV if they add oral ascorbic acid. Have you spoken to Dr. Cheng? No, I have not. I bet he's very busy, but I think you may be able to reach out to him and please ask him to try it. I'll definitely connect you, and he certainly would be up for that. Now, what's your take on ester C? Okay, ester C is calcium ascorbate. Instead of a sodium ion, a calcium ion is added to the parent molecule, and that also changes the molecular structure, and it also raises the pH. So it is about the same as sodium ascorbate, except you get calcium instead of sodium. And how about uh, liposomal vitamin C? We're hearing a lot about that. Ah, yes. Okay. Liposomal, it's a great way to deliver uh, vitamin C because many studies have shown that the absorption of lipo is much higher. And it's basically uh, vitamin C effectively packaged in a... In a yes, it's a encapsulated, encapsulated in uh, lipids. And so it actually can get into the bloodstream more effectively. However, like most liposomal C uses sodium ascorbate as an ingredient. So even if you get it into the bloodstream at high amounts, the effect of the molecular stru structure has not changed. So if, if you can get a lipo-C that uses ascorbic acid, then that would be dynamite. Now, my, my logic here, and, and, and please tell me this may be wrong, but I mean, liposomal vitamin C is a lot more expensive. Yes, uh, so, it is. So uh, if I'm in a situation perhaps with a client where we want to get to very, very high uh, and continuous levels of, of vitamin C, uh, what I recommend is ascorbic acid um, up to the point of bowel tolerance. Uh, so below that, which actually causes some right. And then... I add on top of that the liposomal vitamin C, which, which, uh, and then you can get a little bit higher. So I kind of use the cheap stuff, but it's still very good. It's called the right. And you then know, I add liposomal on the top. Is that, is that, is there logic to that? Now, before I would, before I saw the paper by uh, Dr. Fonerl and Dr. Hickey, I would have agreed with you. But because their measurement was minute to minute, it absolutely changes the way I think about vitamin C ascorbic acid absorption. Because if they had measured liposomal and ascorbic acid using Dr. Fonero's method, I, I would almost bet that the amount of ascorbic acid at the two-minute mark would be higher than lipo <laughs> because 
listen to this because ascorbic acid is acidic. It needs to be absorbed in an acidic environment, which is stomach acid. And if you have low stomach acid, which is normal, the vitamin C transporter called SVTC1, sodium-dependent vitamin C transporter 1, which is a low affinity but high-capacity transporter, will kick in. That means this transporter will only pick up a large quantity of vitamin C and transport it rapidly. And if you have like low quantities, it won't pick it up. So if you take like five to 10 grams of vitamin C, uh, ascorbic acid, it will hit your blood in such high quantities like the chart you see in Dr. Owen's paper. So going back, I would think that taking ascorbic acid is really the way to go. And because they usually measure lipo-C and ascorbic acid over a longer time frame, they could be actually picking up the dips in the chart of the ascorbic acid, if you are following what I'm thinking. Exactly. So in other words, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes Right, right. Depending on when you measure it and the redox capacity of the person, you could be picking up the low level of his ascorbic acid level when like all the macrophages and the lymphocytes, they sucked in the ascorbic acid and haven't released it back into the plasma. So you don't know what's going on unless you measure it minute by minute and track the two side by side. Then you see what is exactly going on. And I bet you that ascorbic acid will win hands down <laughs> because our stomachs are designed by nature to handle ascorbic acid in large volumes. Now and I, that's apes, they eat a lot of fruits, give them like grams and grams of ascorbic acid. Yeah, I just want to dispel a myth here. A lot of people say, you know, ascorbic acid is synthetic, and what you need to do is get it all from, you know, from nature. But the truth of the matter is that all animals, except for very few, are making ascorbic acid uh, through a five-enzyme process. They make ascorbic acid, and it's Correct. actually made from sugar or glucose usually. And what happens in the lab uh, that makes vitamin C, and by the way, we have one in Scotland that could turn out tons of vitamin C if our government would only wake up to the importance of this. But uh, what they do in the lab is they mimic uh, what effectively happens in the body, and you end up with ascorbic acid. Even though it's synthetic because it's made in the lab, uh, animals are synthesizing uh, in their body's metabolism the exact same molecule. Now, some people say they prefer ascorbate, whether it's calcium or magnesium or sodium ascorbate, saying it's more gentle on their stomach. Um, is this true? Um, let's talk about uh, what happens a little bit in the stomach, and also some people get loose bowels or diarrhea. What's actually going on that makes vitamin C uh, sometimes a little unsettling? Okay, this is what happened for people with a higher pH in their stomach acids. Ascorbic acid naturally will lose what one proton when the surrounding pH is higher which means alkaline, lack of stomach acid. 
Uh, yes, when you have less stomach acid and you have a higher pH, which is more alkaline. And ascorbic acid in blood is always in the form of ascorbate because the blood has a higher pH. But when it is in the stomach, ascorbic acid needs that acidity to be transported by the transporters. But if you have uh, alkaline stomach acids, the ascorbic acid, before it gets transported, loses the proton inside the stomach, and that will make your stomach acid more acidic. And for these people, they will have like acid reflux or stomach discomfort or lose bowels. And that is why I actually recommend people when they have, uh, when they hit bowel tolerance, but they need to keep going for whatever reason, or if they have stomach discomfort, to take an acidic beverage like perhaps one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar in two to three ounces of water, warm water. And usually one dose will do it, sometimes two, depending on how severe your case is. And most people will say, hey, Doris, that worked. I don't have any more stomach issues. I don't have bowel tolerance. I took more vitamin C. That's how it works. You need the acid. And if, if they had some citric acid, you know, for example, some orange juice or lemon juice, yes. would, that, would that yes. also do it? Oh, perfect. Yeah. That, that is why nature puts the most vitamin C in citrus fruits. It's acidic. <laughs> so this suggests that if someone's on a proton pump inhibitor like a meprazole, uh, you know, yeah. antacid uh, drugs, and very often people are put on those drugs uh, actually already have a lack of stomach acid, so yeah. that makes yes. it more. Yeah. And then, and then yeah. load it up with 10 grams of ascorbic acid. Um, that no, that's really, really rough. Yes, very rough. Yeah, they, they, they would not fare that well with proton pump inhibitors, I'm, I'm afraid. <laughs> now, I, I actually was formulating a, a powder, um, uh, and this was for people who wanted to use very, very high levels of, of uh, vitamin C. But also, I wanted zinc, I wanted magnesium, uh, I didn't want sodium, um, but I wanted to get some of these other minerals. So I did combine uh, ascorbate, zinc ascorbate, manganese ascorbate, magnesium ascorbate, a uh, little bit of calcium ascorbate, and ascorbic acid. But I made sure that the pH uh, was about five, you know, so it's still a weak acid, uh, it's not a strong acid, uh, but it is delivering both ascorbic acid and an ascorbate. I remember talking to Dr. Steve Hickey, and he, he was saying that, you know, that vitamin C is still absorbed in a, you know, in a, a weak acid situation, which is probably where you're at, at about 5 pH. Right, and it is, it is probably going to be absorbed by the high affinity but low capacity transporter called SVCT2. Okay. Because of the, of the, of the higher uh, uh, pH. Okay. Now, we're sort of, you know, coming towards the end of our uh, uh, fascinating uh, uh, journey through this whole process. I could talk to you for hours, but I do want to ask you, how much vitamin C do you take daily and, and why? Okay. Normally, 
I take about 10 to 12 grams of ascorbic acid during waking hours. But lately, I've noticed a significant increased tolerance for any amount of ascorbic acid. In other words, you, that, you can take more before you get to the loose bowel situation. I don't get loose bowels, I don't get gas, I don't get any reaction, and that's what is uh, surprising and a little bit um, disturbing because it really shows that the virus is everywhere and no one is exempt. Mm. Now, I have absolutely no symptoms whatsoever. I don't feel any different. The only difference is that I can take up to like 30 grams of ascorbic acid without any of the stomach effects like mm -hmm. I did before. So I practice, I practice social, social distancing so that I may not infect others should I be an asymptomatic carrier. So this is just a guess, you know, but I want to be careful. I, I'm a bit more, uh, I take two grams a day and I always separate it out. And, uh, but my sort of golden rule is if I ever get the first signs of cold or flu, I'm going to preload uh, with anywhere between two and five grams immediately. And then I'll take a gram an hour uh, yes. until the symptoms are gone. And yes. normally they're gone in 24 hours, very, very occasionally 48 hours. And I think probably about two or three times in my life, it hasn't worked but that's really it. I've never taken a day off sick. That's amazing. Yes, vitamin C works. I mean, all my readers, they come to me and tell me all sorts of miraculous stories about vitamin C. It's really quite amazing. Now, I think Dr. Yeah. Poppy will be very, very happy. Uh, yeah, what a wonderful man he was. I was so honored to spend time with him. And uh, I he was the first, the first uh, I, I mean, he, you know, he really changed my life in such a big way. Such, such a bright man. And it was all that business about electrons moving between molecules and atoms. He actually worked out, you know, how that fundamental uh, chemical bond occurs. And that's what he won his first Nobel, Peace, Nobel Prize for. He then got a second Nobel Prize for peace because he took over Einstein's work on, uh, on uh, banning nuclear bomb testing. Uh, he had 48 honorary PhDs. I mean, the man was you know, off the planet in terms of intelligence and yes. really could think out of the box. And his virtually his parting words to me, because I filmed him when he was working on his last theory a few months before his death in his, in his 90s, he was working on something called lipoprotein A, which is very, very important in relation to cardiovascular disease and only now really being recognized. And he said to me, Patrick, he looked me in the eye and he said to me, Follow the logic. It's the logic that counts. The double-blind control trials, they'll come later. Follow the logic. And what I love about your work is you are following that logic. It makes yeah. absolute sense. Uh, yeah. It may take a, a while before, uh, you know, the rest of the medical community catch <laughs> up and maybe even longer because, you know, we have some very big pharmaceutical interests who do not want uh, these cheap uh, and efficient and safe and non-patentable substances, you know, really used. That's the truth. But I do want to thank you immensely for your intelligence, your commitment, for following the logic. There's been a lot to take in in this podcast, but don't worry. Uh, Doris Lowe's in-depth research on vitamin C 
uh, is in a report which is on my new website, flufighters.net. And if you click on the resources section, you'll see it. Uh, Doris has, you know, we've really just not touched the surface because we've gone pretty deep. Uh, but, you know, there's a whole nother layer to this as well uh, if you are that way inclined. Uh, this is this is what this is really saying is that ascorbic acid is not an adjunct treatment. It's not like a, a nice thing to think about. Uh, it is actually the single most important intervention uh, that absolutely tackles the fundamental issue of what is happening and what is causing acute respiratory distress. Cortisone is an anti-inflammatory. A mechanical ventilator is delivering oxygen to someone who has low oxygen levels. But vitamin C is getting right in there and reversing the process and actually dealing with what the fundamental cause is all about. Um, it's very, very exciting. Doris Lowe, we have to end here, but I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom with us. Thank you, Patrick, for having me. It was, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. This podcast series is supported by my new book, Flu Fighters, How to Win the Cold War by Boosting Your Natural Immunity with Non-Toxic Nutrients. It's published on April the 30th and available to pre-order right now at www.flufighters.net. You'll also find resources here to support these podcasts, as well as details on any relevant articles, webinars and seminars and media broadcasts to help you learn how to take charge of your own immunity and stay healthy.